0: enjoying the tune. Uh, I've uploaded the two clips that show Rasputin in a popular cultural light and it's quite interesting to see how this figure has been maligned how it is that he can be described either as a holy man or that of a charlatan as well, which is something we'll be exploring in today's podcast. So particularly, have a look at the documentary that I've posted up. Um, You know, it goes into detail in terms of Rasputin's uh, court intrigue and how apparently it is said that uh, in the middle of a brothel, that he grabbed his private member and said that this is what rules Russia and that was something that was reported by the Okara, gets into circulation too as well, um, also as well about how he is seen to be this evil figure in, in the Disney movie uh, Betrayal of Anastasia and being the main film uh, protagonist there. So have a look in terms of you no. Know, what are the facts about Rasputin and have a look in terms of how these myths and legends really have grown. And it's perfectly exemplified when it comes to his death. Like we never really know what will happen, what did happen, sorry, in that cellar. We've got different reports, uh, exaggerations as well, because he was seen as almost like this Antichrist figure as well. But... um, very interesting man and I'm looking forward to uh, sharing the lesson with you today on uh, Rasputin. Now, particularly when it comes to the role of Rasputin, you can comment on him on the issue one essay, which is due for this Friday and hope that you're getting on with that um, okay. I can see particularly on our Microsoft Teams page, a lot of you are accessing PowerPoints and podcasts and you've been looking through the criteria of the essay, which is fantastic. Just make sure that... Um, you're including the historical mention in that of the introduction and you've seen that in the exemplar essay that I have attached as well and it's just it's working on your analysis, working on your evaluation and it's just really that um, with those four historian quotes that I put down in the marking scheme, it's just get that in the main body of your essay and really engage as well. If you're doing your own um, reading for history, fantastic, I know some of you were interested in Orlando Figg's um, publication. Uh, so have a look in terms of including things in, um, but as I said saying, if it comes to issue one, essay, you can mention in terms of when it comes to the political factors, you can talk about Rasputin. And it's the same when it comes to the issue two, SE, you'll see when it comes to the February Revolution. So there is a bit of an overlap here when it comes to it. I did try to have a student last year who wanted to do their dissertation on Rasputin and to to, to what extent was Rasputin the main reason for the February revolution to take place. Uh, That's something that um, the SQA have never verified as a dissertation because whilst he is a popular character you can say really that he is a footnote in the the disasters of the the Romanov family but he's not really the cause. His unpopularity will showcase that the tsarina is incompetent, and by his death, um, you know she is, um, very much hated by the Duma, by the Russian people because if this is supposed sexual relationship, entrusting a monk with the ministerial leapfrog to as well, and also because um she is German, so he helps in a way steer the family towards that of the abyss, and. Well, Explore Today He very much was one for prophecy and in a letter to Nicholas II, which he calls Nicholas II Papa, he said, you know, if I am to be killed, assassinated, my death is at the hands of someone in your family, then I promise you that they will not, your family, your children will not live longer than two years and your family will be killed by that of the Russian people and that is something that comes to pass. Particularly, uh, if we start to have a look at the post-mortem of Gregory Rasputin that was done on the 20th December 1916, Professor Dmitry Kerfusov notes that the body is of a man of about 50 years old, of medium size, dressed in a blue embroidered hospital robe which covers a white shirt. His legs and tall animal skin boots are tied with a rope and the same rope ties his wrists His dishevelled hair is light brown, as is his long moustache and beard and it's soaked with blood. His mouth is half open, his teeth clenched. His face below the forehead is covered in blood. His shirt too is also marked with blood. There are three bullet wounds. The first was penetrated on the left side of the chest and has gone through the stomach and the liver. Examination of the head. The cerebral matter gave off a strong smell of alcohol. Examination of the stomach. Stomach contains about 20 soup spoons of liquid smelling of alcohol. The examination reveals no trace of poison. Wounds. His left side has a weeping wound due to sonic sort of slicing object or sword. His right eye has come out of its cavity and falls into the face. At the corner of the right eye of the membrane is torn. His right ear is hanging down and torn. His neck has a wound from some sort of rope tie. The victim's face and a body carry traces of blows given by a subtle but hard object. His genitals have been crushed by the action of a similar object. Hemorrhage caused by the wound to his liver and the wound to the right kidney must have started the rapid decline of his strength. In that case, he would have died in 10 or 20 minutes. At the moment of his death and decrease, decreased was the state of drunkenness. The first blow passed through the stomach and the liver. This mortal blow was shot from a distance of 20 centimetres. The wound on the right side, made at nearly exactly the same time as the first, was also mortal. It passed through the right kidney. The victim at the time of the murder was standing. When he was shot in the forehead, his body was already on the ground. So we have a very bloody portrait here of the end of Rasputin. And today we're going to examine his rise, his ascension into that of really the bosom of the royal family. How he becomes a trusted holy man of the the Tsarina and is involved in uh, political intrigue in terms when it comes to that ministerial leapfrog. And to examine here his bloody end. So Rasputin is a mystic who began his life as a peasant created extraordinary levels of conflict within the Russian government. At the third president of the Duma, Renkakov, stated in his memoir, the highest officials in the state were themselves divided into two hostile camps, pro and anti rasputins The conflict arose from Rasputin's close relationship and influence on the imperial family. The Tsars were completely captivated by Rasputin. He was originally called before the Tsars to heal their son, Alexei. Alexei, who had haemophilia. The imperial family had exercised every other option, traditional and non-traditional, and was extremely desperate. When they heard about this holy man with healing powers, they jumped at the opportunity to bring him into the palace. His administrations brought relief to the poor boy and on following occasions. It was a success that continued to get him invited back to the palace. The more he proved his abilities, the closer the Tsars got to Rasputin. One account in summer 1912 demonstrates how reliant the Tsar became on Rasputin. Rasputin had received many letters from the imperial family. This was the fact that Rasputin held very dear and was not discreet in showing off his connection to the crown. When his desecration was brought to Nicholas and Alexander's attention, they cast Rasputin aside. However, the summer of 1912, Alexei had an accident which left him bedridden and in extreme pain. The family explored every avenue of medicine to stop and to minimise the pain. The situation became very bleak and the Tsar feared the loss of his male heir. Alexandra, however, refused to give up. She sent a telegram to Rasputin and begged him to attend her son. Following his arrival, Alexei's bleeding ceased. No one understood how this could have happened. Alexandra, however, took it as a reason to reinstate Rasputin into the family's good graces. After this episode, Rasputin understood perfectly his strength hold over to the royal family, Time and time again, he warned the emperor, empress, the boy will live only as long as I am alive. And that is taken by historian Fleming, that quote. With the family's dependency on Rasputin and his emotional blackmail, it became impossible to deny Rasputin's hold over the rulers. Alexandra and Nicholas feared that the future of the family's legacy and the country itself Rasputin came to embody the means of which the son would survive to take the throne and ensure the continuation of imperial Russia. To the family, he also appeared to be a direct connection to God. Regardless of the accusations and rumours that were spread, the Tsars came quickly to the mystic's defence. His ability to cure their son was reason enough to replicate any accusations. According to Nicholas, as his diary stated, Rasputin truly was a man of God. So let's go back here to the beginning and let's find out who Gregory Yefimovich Rasputin is. So he is the son of a Russian peasant. He was born in Siberia on the tenth of January, eighteen sixty-nine. His mother gave birth to seven other children, but they all died in childbirth. His father, Yevfim Rasputin, was described as a typical Siberian peasant, chunky, unkempt, and stooped. He served as an elder in the village church and one local person spoke of his learned conversations and wisdom. Although he briefly attended school, he failed to learn how to read or write. As a child, he went to his parents to nearby monasteries, and it's claimed that he wanted to become a monk. One biographer, Joseph Firman, points out that Gregory's personality embodied divergent and contrasting strains, the religious seeker and the debauched hell-raiser. And that is two parallel personalities that you'll see when he comes to the imperial court. To the Tsarina, he always presents himself as this holy man, but outside he is womanising, he is going to brothels, he uh, gets regularly drunk too as well. And he boasts a lot of that connection that he has with the royal family. And particularly a lot of women do talk about the sexual energy in which he possesses as well. So there is two two opposing sides here of Rasputin. So he gained a reputation as a holy man or that of a starlet and it's rumoured that he belonged to the Christket, a sect that found religious fulfillment and exody through the religious senses and that is something that really is um, explored upon in the documentary. A lot of historians are quite divided if he was a part of this sect and if you've watched um, The Last Hour on Netflix it shows him to be a part of this religious sect. And that apparently Rasputin is reported to have said that when he was um, wanting to have sexual relations with women, that uh, for them to get closer to God, that they would have to have sex with himself. In 1886, Rasputin met the 20-year-old Paresca de Verena. They were married five months later on the 2nd of February, 1887, three weeks after his 18th birthday. She was described as plump with dark eyes, small features and thick blonde hair. Though short, she was strong and an important asset in the wife expected to bear children while tackling the harvest. The first child was born in a foreign year, but died six months of scarlet fever. They then had twins, both died of a whooping cough. Another child died, but then three children survived adulthood – Dimitri, Maria and Fararia. Rasputin became a holy wonder and visitor to holy sites. On his return, he developed a small group of followers. He became a vegetarian and argued against drinking alcohol. He also built a chapel in his father's cellar. It was rumoured that female followers were ceremoniously washing him before meeting and the group was involved in self flagellation as well as also sexual orgies. So it is claimed, again um, it's disputed that he visited Jerusalem, the Balkans and Mesopotamia. He claimed he had special powers that enabled him to heal the sick and lived off donations of the people he helped. Rasputin also made money as a fortune teller In about 1902, he travelled to the city of Kazan on the Volga River and acquired reputation as a holy man. Despite rumours that Rasputin was having sex with some of his female followers. He gained the support of senior figures of the church and was given a letter of recommendation to Bishop Sergei, the rector of St. Petersburg Theological Cemetery. Soon after arriving in St. Petersburg in 1903, Rasputin met Hermogen, the bishop of Savatov. He was impressed by Rasputin's healing powers and introduced him to Nicholas II and his wife Alexandra. The Tsar's only son, as we know, suffered from helophilia, a disease in which it is passed through the mother and a disease in which the blood does not clot if a wound occurs. And it is widely regarded because at this stage in time that um, it's very rare for a child then to survive into adulthood. When their son was taken seriously in 1908, Rasputin was called to the royal palace. He managed to stop the bleeding and then, from then, became a member of the royal entourage. The Tsarina was completely convinced by the supernatural power of Rasputin. In their despair at the inability of the orthodox medicine to overcome or alleviate the disease, the imperial couple turned to the relief to Rasputin. She attached the physical power to objects handled by Rasputin. She sent Rasputin sick stick and comb to the Tsar so he might benefit from Gregory's vigour when attending ministerial council. So she is a very deeply religious woman. and you know, she um, further retreats into herself when um, it comes to her son being ill and she's very much family-centred. And like from this, like it does seem to be like a- an act or a gift from God. It's unknown in terms of how Rasputin is able to heal him. Is it the fact that, um, from warning off doctors from using things such as like opium and such, that it makes a boy um, look healthier, and be able to get back on his feet again? Is it because you know he has the ability to um, speak to God, or is it down to herbal remedies or some ability maybe to of like? Um, hypnosis that is able to calm Alexis. So it's difficult to know how it is that Rasputin does this but the Tsarina believes that Rasputin has been sent to God then to help her son and she really wants to have him then in the close circles because particularly the pressure on her burying a male heir and then she becomes hysterical, paranoid in terms of like what is going to happen to their son. That is a real worry for Alexandra and Nicholas II and you can't help but not feel sympathetic uh, for them. Um, There's a great deal of empathy and sympathy that comes because they just don't know what to do and its situation is quite precarious because particularly with the freedom of speech and newspaper press and bulletins like the boy is seen to be carried around in the arms of sailors, in the arms of close guards, even his father as well carried him around. And for the family to be able to be seen as something that's strong and it's going to be long lasting, that they have to have a healthy male heir. And they're worried about the concerns of their son being viewed as being sick, because if he does die, then that puts the royal family into that of the jeopardy here. So um, because of this sense that he is a saviour, he then is put into an elevated position to the Russian court with direct access to the royal family. And he has direct access to the royal children as well. So she becomes very much dependent on Rasputin. And Alexandra wrote a flurry of letters. Um, there's over 600 letters in the archives in St. Petersburg and what she's written to her husband. But there's also letters here that she has written to Rasputin and we'll see later on about how some of these letters then are able to come into circulation with the press and are published and how people read in between this and think that there really is an inappropriate sexual relationship happening between them. So she wrote, "'How distraught I am without you. My soul is only at peace. I only rest when you, my teacher, are seated beside me and I kiss your hands and lean my head on your blessed shoulders.' Then I only have one wish to sleep for centuries on your shoulders in the embraces. Now, if i reading that, it's a very interesting letter to uh, write to a friend. But the idea here that she does love Rasputin, and it's not necessarily sexual love or romantic love, is that she is wholly dependent on him and he knows this as well. Adrienne Taika, the wife of the British journalist Harold Williams. Throughout Russia, both at the front and at home, rumour grew even louder concerning the precarious influence exercised by Empress Alexandra, at whose side rose the sinister figure of Gregory Rasputin. This charlatan and hypnotic man had wormed himself into the Tsar's palace and gradually acquired a limited limited power over the hysterical Empress and throughout her over the sovereign. Rasputin's proximity to the Tsar's family proved fatal to the dynasty, for no political criticism can harm the prestige of the Tsar so effectively than the personal weakness, vice or debasement of members of the royal house. And that is something here that is going to cause um, their decline because it's gossip you'll see, particularly in the PowerPoint uploaded, there is um, this pornographic material that is released between the two of them into newspapers. And if you don't have respect for your family or for that of the royal family in Russia... Then why should the people be willing to fight for them during the Great War? So particularly, you know, women from the higher social circles flocked to Rasputin for advice and healing, or to carry petitions to the Tsar to advance their husbands' careers. There was rumors that Rasputin solicited in sexual favors for his help, and stories of orgies emerged. However, secret police reports and subsequent investigations seem to show that his sexual activity, though he was very active, was restricted mainly to actresses and prostitutes rather than that of society. Whatever the truth about Rasputin's relationships, his reputation for debauchery played a significant role in damaging the standing of the royal family and caused the Tsar's political problems. The Tsar had newspaper reports about Rasputin censored. He fell out with a Duma over this and Rasputin's influence positioned at court. Ministers such as Stolfen profoundly disapproved of Rasputin, but any mention of the problems he caused brought short, stripped from that of the Tsar. So particularly, there becomes quite a political angle in supporting or not supporting Rasputin. So along those who support him publicly are General Vykov and Boris Strummer, who you remember is the Prime Minister um, who is replacing Stofan in 1916. So being on the side of the Tsars increased their own power and their safety in their positions. They also earned the resentment of those that were anti-Rasputin. However, those who had a part in the government and supported the imperial connection to Rasputin had little to worry about as long as Nicholas kept his grip on par. While some in government support Rasputin in the relationship with the Tsar, there were those with dissenting views. One of the most prominent was the third president of the Duma, Mikhail Ryanko. His memoir, The Reign of Rasputin and Empire's Collapse, Renko discusses the great deal of effect that Rasputin's presence had on the empire and its fall. In his eyes, the Rasputinites, led together with the parties of the extreme right, led the foundations of the Russian Revolution, for they estranged the emperor from his people and allowed a shadow to be cast over the luster of the crown. Throughout the memoir, he does not only condemn those who supported Rasputin, but also those who remained neutral. He had a deep respect for the Romanovs and saw himself as trying to save the family and the emperor from ruin. Renko believed that the state united itself against the corruption and influence of Rasputin that they were able to convince the Tsar of the danger of lurking in their most trusted advisor. He saw the neutrals as apathetically standing witnesses to the crumbling of their government, General Demkin, another political figure who voices the of Rasputin. Rasputin was dodged with rumours of sexual appetites and other sordid affairs that were more than enough because of cause for concern. In Renko's member, he recounts the story of Donovan's desire to avoid meeting the acquaintance of the holy man. According to this count, Nicholas asked Duklin why he continued to resist or avoid any encounter of Rasputin. Duklin is said to have replied that he disliked him intensely, that he more than a tarnished reputation, and it pained him as a loyal subject to see this rascal so close to the sacred person of his sovereign. Not only were high-ranking officers abhorrents of Rasputin personal, but also because they feared the influence that he had had over the empire as a whole. So, on the 12th of July, 1914, a 33-year-old peasant woman named Shena Giskiff attempted to assassinate Gregory Rasputin by stabbing him in the stomach outside of his home. Rasputin was seriously wounded and a local doctor who performed emergency surgery saved his life. Giskiff claimed to have acted alone, having read about Rasputin in the newspapers and believing him to be a false prophet and even an antichrist. That's something that's quite interesting how this um prostitute actually has um no nose takes it upon herself to assassinate Rasputin and it sort of gives you that sense about you know how his name is so widely known now in Russia and people begrudge him they do not like him being with the royal family and people then are wanting to seize it within themselves. So you could see then how then this is going to cause this arena to become more paranoid, more hysterical, because she feels that Rasputin needs to be about, needs to be alive in order to support that of her son. So in February 1914, Tsar Nicholas II accepted the advice of his foreign minister, Sergei Zavyeov. And committed Russia to supporting the Triple o Tantra. I remember like we were looking at yesterday about how there's this great euphoria, there seems to be this uh, bond has been replaced, all has been forgiven from 1905 for that of the Tsar, the people are holding crosses and icons uh, in the streets when it comes to this and um, we're pledging ourselves to that of the war. Um, but this here is going to have quite a testing point for that of Russia with Nicholas trying to rule that of the front line but also in terms of having that political power vacuum in St. Petersburg as well. So the foreign minister was of the opinion that the event of the war Russia's membership of the Trinidad Trump would enable it to make territory gains from neighboring countries. The uh, foreign minister sent a telegram to the Russian ambassador in London asking him to make clear to the British government that the Tsar was committed to a war with Germany and this is something that is also, quite sad as well because uh, Kaiser Wilhelm is the first cousin to the arena and you know Nicholas and his diary entries um, find it very difficult to believe that we have nicknamed Willie would be able to do anything like this in terms of to to start a war. So we're really having yes, a European war here, but we also have cousin versus cousin, and it just makes it all um, more tragic. So that he is committed then to that of the war, we're going to have a look at um, expansionism, and also look at his own affairs as well. In the international crisis of the assassination of Archduke Franz Ferdinand, the Tsar made it clear that he was willing to go to war over the issue. Rasputin, who was an outspoken critic of this policy, and joined forces with two senior figures, Sergei Wit and Petro Derbivo, to prevent the war. Derbevo told the Tsar that a war with Germany would be mutually dangerous to both countries no matter who it won. Witt added that there must be inevitably break of the conquered country, a social revolution, which the very nature of things will spread to the country of victor. And that is something that we had a look for yesterday in terms about how possibly that, um, you know, this event could actually spark that to a revolution. So Sergei Witt realised that the importance of the economic situation Russia would lose a war with any of its rivals. Bernard Pears met Witt and Rasputin several times in the years leading up to the First World War and it's noted that Count Witt, at Sergei Witt, never served from his convictions. Firstly, that Russia must avoid a war at all costs and secondly, she must work with the economic friendship of France and Germany to counteract pre-war adorance of England. Rasputin was opposed to the war for reasons as good as Witt's. He was for peace between all nations and between all religions. But we're going to see how it is that the war is that of the catalyst for the downfall of the family, which Rasputin does have a hand to play in as well. On the outbreak of the First World War, General Alexander Zanfuzo was given command of the Russian Second Army for the invasion of the eastern Prussia. He advanced slowly into the southwestern corner of the province with the intention of linking up with General Paul von Hindenburg and that of Paul von Reffenkamp. And we've seen this before, particularly yesterday, that we've had um, the disaster at the Battle of Tannenberg that lasted three days. Only 10,000 of 150,000 Russian soldiers managed to escape. Um, the, the general himself um, commits suicide. That uh, that the Germans here engaged them again on the 9th of September, 1914. And it's estimated that Russia has lost over a quarter of a million men. So the war campaign here isn't going well, particularly with leadership, tactics, with that um, of ill-devised resources. They don't have boots, they don't have the rifles here too as well. So particularly in 1915, we have this starly move in which Nicholas decides to replace the Grand Duke, Nikolai. And Nikolai, um, he had this like towering command. He was everything that a leader wanted to be. But particularly in correspondence between Alexandra and Nicholas II, she's expressing her fear that all the credit and attention is going to go to the Grand Duke, and you know she asks him like, "No, who is Tsar of this country?" And then Nicholas makes that decision that um, he wants to have command himself. Now it's every right for a monarch, no, to appoint or dismiss. But you would think that maybe that he would have appointed someone else that had military expertise, particularly after the loss of the Russo-Japanese conflict. But no, he has placed himself in the front firing line. It's quite ironic that he has managed to do this because uh, it means, then, as you know, that the finger of blame is always going to be pinpointed to him. And then same back in, in St. Petersburg, now known as Petrograd, that Alexandra now is, in fact, ruling the country and being unept changing ministers around, um, surrounding herself with people that are sycophants, loyal autocrats as well, that we're entering into a true stalemate here with that in Russian society that will enter into a war of attrition between that of autocracy and that of the people. So Alexander Kerensky, who will play an important part when it comes to the provisional government, Um, back in 1917 complained that the Tsarina's blind faith in Rasputin led her to seek his counsel not only in personal matters but also on questions of state policy. General Alietsky held in high esteem by Nicholas II tried to talk to the Tsarina about Rasputin only to be succeeded in making a impassable enemy of her. The general told me later about his profound concern on learning that a secret map of military operations had found its way back into the Tsarina's hand, but like many others he was powerless then to take any action. As the Tsar spent most of his time in the general headquarters in that of Poland, Alexander Alexander, took more responsibility for domestic policy. Rasputin served as her advisor and over the next few months she dismissed ministers from their deputies in rapid succession. In letters to her husband, she called for her ministers as fools and idiots. According to um, historian David Shubb, the real leader of Russia now was the Empress Alexandra. On the 7th July 1915, the Tsar wrote to his wife and complained about the problem he faced fighting in the war. He notes and says that, again, the cursed question of shortage of artillery and rifle ammunition, it stands in the way of an energetic advance. If we could have three days of serious fighting, we might run out of ammunition altogether. Without new rifles, it's impossible to fill up the gaps. If we had rest from the fighting for about a month, our condition would improve greatly. It is understood, of course, that what I say is strictly only to you. Please do not give any other word to anyone else. In 1916, 2 million Russian soldiers were killed or seriously wounded and a third of a million were taken prisoner. Millions of peasants were conscripted into the Tsar's army, but supplies of rifles and ammunition remained inadequate. It is estimated that one third of Russia's able-bodied men were serving in the army. The peasants were therefore unable to work on farms, producing the usual amount of food. By November 1916, food prices were four times as high as the war. As a result, strikes for higher wages did become more common. In Russian cities. So it's quite something here with the Tsar at the front lines that Rasputin and Tsarina are effectively in control of domestic matters. They do play havoc with ministers and contributed to the government's instability. As a result they became the focus of growing public anger and antagonism towards the regime. She was portrayed as a German spy deliberately conniving with Rasputin to betray Mother Russia pornographic cartoons and letters found their way to the press and implied that she was having an illicit relationship with Rasputin and was under his control. Even the rapidly diminishing supporters of the Tsar could not put up with the degenerated monk and the German woman running the country. And this means in December, a member of the royal family, Prince Yusufov, arranged to murder Rasputin in a last-ditch effort to save the autocracy. But the damage was done. Many of the men I were convinced that the regime now was not worth um, saving. Particularly, tensions in the Duma and frustrations are at an all-time high. By 1916, Vladimir Pershkov, a man who had been continuously loyal to the Tsar, had a violent outburst in regards to the Tsar and his association with Rasputin. He is said to have mentioned in the Duma that if you are truly loyal to Russia, then on your feet, have the courage to tell the Tsar, an obscure starlet shall govern Russia no longer. Soon to follow was the formation of a plan to kill Rasputin, The members of the Duma became so infuriated and fed up with Rasputin and his perceived power over the imperial family that they saw murderously in a way to put an end to the relationship. Their voices had been ignored and now they were going to act. They wanted to change the future of Russia and protect the crown, but the damage had already been done. Nearly two months later, the monarchs would fall and the country would be consumed by a revolution. Rasputin polarised and alienated the Duma and distracted it from acting as a united force against the stirring revolution. So, particularly note, Rasputin also causes ripples of anxiety and resentment throughout the church. At the heart of the most of the church's members worry about the two faced nature of Rasputin. On one hand, Rasputin seemed as if he was a reformed and deeply religious man. The monk Sergei Trifigo, um, book, most commonly referred to as A Lickador, provides an account of Rasputin's conversation story told by Rasputin. In his younger years, Rasputin had struggled with drinking too much and frequent sexual activity. He then reported began to reform and went on a pilgrimage. Following this pilgrimage, he was visited by Saint Simeon and in a dream was told him to wander and to save people. Rasputin heeded the saint's request and began travelling, became acquainted with many influential religious figures. His name started to become known across the country. His story of redemption and conversion was hard for many to ignore because redemption stories were highly regarded in most faiths. However, Rasputin's redemption story was challenged by stories of affairs and his involvements with women. In his memoir, uh, that of the President of the Duma, Rankville discusses how the rumours of Rasputin's sexual liaisons became so common and frequent that people began to say openly that that he'd been seduced by Rasputin. The secret orgies and promiscuous immortality was practised in certain flats. People over Russia were discussing Rasputin's supposed places and persons he had sex in and with. It became a household name and not only because of his connection to the Zars, but also because what people speculated happened behind closed doors. Accusations of this nature were supported by observations in books. When Eligador was travelling with Rasputin, he noticed the old women in Rasputin interacted with women. They went around the country in general, he observed. Gregory played nowhere, neither at the Semvedorf, nor at Zaritsyn nor monastery where we had stopped. He was constantly on the run, running after women and girls and lecturing them. The monk recounts one night how he was presented with woman at his bedside by Rasputin. He suspected that Rasputin had tried to prevent him from indulging in secrets with the promise of sex. Regardless of whether these stories were true or rumour, the general prescription that Rasputin was indeed involved in frequent non-conventional sexual acts and attained to the public's view of him and the public's perception of the czars as well. The conflict between Rasputin as a holy man and the view of him as a libertine came to head with the church in disagreement over whether Rasputin ought to be allowed to become a part of the priesthood. According to one of Rydempko's sources, the high procurator uh, has suggested Rasputin would be a good candidate for the priesthood. The synod had proceeded to deny Rasputin the ability to become an official church member, and from this here then we have um, tensions that are also rising to as well. So in an effort to try to maintain control, Nicholas silenced those who spoke out against one of his most trusted advisors. This served not only to alienate those who opposed him, but also who supported him as well. The church and state, two pillars that were closely together to ensure the function of the empire both suffered from internal divisions and were at war with each other. No matter what side supported, there was anger not only of the opposing side, but also the rulers as well. It was this anger and polarisation that would pave the way for the revolution of 1917. Members of the government and church were discontented and distracted. Russia was restless for all change of levels of society. This created fertile ground for those preparing to mount a full-fledged resistance against the crime. The Romanov association with Rasputin also helped to fuel public hostility and discontent with the imperial family. The Russian government tried to monitor what was published and distributed to the people. This included a century committee that was policed these things, the printed, and fined those who disobeyed. As Rasputin became better known and closely associated with the Tsars, the public became more and more restless. Most of the public had some fears of Rasputin's influence over the rulers, as did the Church, the Duma and the aristocratic. By 1916, stories circulated that Russia was under full control of Rasputin, many believed such stories. As tensions grew, people became less worried about the censorship committee and the penalties it imposed. There were many stories of publications, printing articles about impact and exploits of Rasputin and the willing paid with fines. Even though laws were put in place that prevented criticism of the Tsars and the government, newspapers like the Siberian Trade Gazette boldly called Rasputin a half educated peasant. Not only did the censorship committee keep an eye on those established papers, but the circulation of informal pamphlets as well. A particularly famous one depicts Rasputin as a puppet master controlling two puppets that were clearly intended to be Nicholas and Alexandra. The confiscation of these stories only led to an increase in circulation and served to fuel people's anger. The anchor was steadily building for almost a decade. For a brief moment after the October Manifesto in 1905, people had hoped for a better future for Russia. Broken promises, bloody conflicts and poverty and alienation from the Tsars lay waste to that hope. People were disillusioned and suffering and could not understand why this seemingly random peasant appeared as if he ran the country. Rasputin was the last straw for the Russian people. The starlight's media coverage brewed up in the fall of 1916. It was not long after Rasputin was murdered. The people saw this as a positive omen one less physical reminder of the failings and parts of their rulers. A few months later, the revolution would ensue. Rasputin's toxic presence had further exacerbated public and set the country further down the path of revolution and the murder of that of the Romanov family. So Russia's involvement in World War I had a profoundly negative effect on the country and, ceased suffering, sorry, and caused suffering, but it did not cause the fall of the imperial Russia. The country was falling apart prior to the World War One. Russia's instability can be traced back to the revolution of 1905. Nicholas' rule was threatened by people's resentment at the time and he used the October Manifesto as a way to placate the people. Even though he went back to the things that he had promised, he gave the people enough to dilute their anger temporarily. Resentment and anger built in the following years and further divided the country, which was reflected in the dysfunction and failure on the battlefield. Nicholas saw the war as a way to bring glory to this line and prosperity back to Russia. The way he brought the best approach was being on the front lines himself. While he was away, a power vacuum was created which Rasputin happily filled. He continued to perpetuate the rumours of his influence over the Tsars even in the midst of the war. No matter where one looked, Rasputin left his mark. The Russians were hungry and dying while their ruler blundered out in the front lines an extremely controversial man appeared to be holding the reins of power. It was fair to say that the war aggravated issues that were already present in Russian society before its onset. Of a growing wedge between the Tsar and the Russian people due to Rasputin, there was nothing Nicholas could do but to the Russian people again. The emotions and frustrations that led to the revolution of 1905 led to the revolution that occurred twelve years later. While Rasputin was not the sole cause of the revolution of 1917, the division he formed weakened the already shaky foundations of Russia. Rasputin impacted every facet in Russian life. The church, the state, the Russian people developed greater resentment towards the Tsar and fear of the future of Russia because of him. Nicholas and Alexander chose to protect Rasputin while still trying to maintain their own power. It was impossible to do both. By disregarding countless warnings about the man, the Tsar confirmed fears that they had been caught in Rasputin's web. The imperial family continued support of Rasputin in their acts of retaliation against those who opposed him, alienated the Tsar and the Tsarina from the people and the leaders of the church and the states. Having lost the respect of most of the Russians, it became inevitable for the Tsars would fall dragged down by the weight of Rasputin and frustrations of the Russian people. The impact of Rasputin and the fate of Russia's royal family illustrates significance that one individual can have on the course of history. Rasputin may have believed himself as a healer, but he tore apart a nation. So let's turn and have a look at the assassination of Rasputin. So rumours began to circulate that Rasputin and Alexander were leaders of a pro-German court group and were seeking to separate peace with the central powers. This upset Michael Revyenko, the president of the Duma, and he told Nicholas II, I must tell your majesty this cannot continue any longer. No one opens your eyes to the true role in which this man Rasputin is playing. His presence in your majesty's court undermines the confidence in the supreme power and may have an evil effect on the fate of the dynasty and turn the hearts of the people from the Emperor. So quite astute uh, and insightful that comment. Mansfield Smith Cummings, the head of MI6, became very concerned about the influence Rasputin was having on the Russia's foreign policy. Samuel Hoare was assigned to the British Intelligence Mission with the German with the Russian General Staff. Soon afterwards he came given the rank of Lieutenant Colonel, and Mansfield Smith Cummings appointed him as head of the British Secret Intelligence Service in Petrograd. Other members of the unit including Oswald Rare, Covered John Scale and Stephen Alley. One of the main tasks was to deal with Rasputin and considered to be one of the most potent of baleful German field forces in that of Russia. The main fear was that Russia might negotiate a separate peace with Germany, therefore releasing 70 German divisions tied down in Eastern Front. One MI6 agent wrote that German intrigue was becoming more in- intense daily. Enemy agents were busy whispering a peace and hinting how to get creating disorder, rioting, these things looked very black. Romania was collapsing and Russia herself seemed weakening. The fear in communications, the shortness of foods, the sinister influence which seemed to be clogging the war machine, Rasputin and drunken debaucher, influencing Russia's policy, was all to bring an end of it. Samuel Hoare reported in December 1916 that poor leadership and in inadequate weaponry had led to Russia war fatigue. So particularly here, what we can see is the British perspective at all. Now, we're not saying that MI6 is anyway behind the assassination of Rasputin. It's just important just to note that this is something that is feared in Britain because rumours are circulating in Russia that Alexandra as well as Rasputin are forming this uh, pro-German front and that something really needs to be done here in order to make sure that Russia doesn't vacate that of the Eastern Front Otherwise, the British forces in Europe are really going to struggle um, combating that of a German advancement. At the same time as well, Vladimir Purgeshkov, who was leader of the monarchists in the Duma, was also attempted to organise the elimination of Rasputin. He wrote to Prince Felix Yuvuzov, I'm terribly busy working on a plan to eliminate Rasputin. That is simply essential now, since otherwise everything will be finished. You two must take part in it. Dmitri Plevyov-Romanov knows all about it and is helping. He will take place in the middle of December when Dmitri comes back. Not a word to anyone about what I have written. Yushov replied the next day, Many thanks for your math letter. I could not understand half of it. But I can see that you're preparing some sort of wild action. My chief objection is that you've decided upon everything without consulting me. I can see by your letter that you're wildly enthusiastic and ready to climb up the walls. Don't you dare anything about me or I will shall not come to it at all. Eventually, Vladimir Pershkileev and Felix Yusov agreed to work together to kill Rasputin. So the Grand Duke Dmitry Pavlov Romanov, Dr Stankius De Levit, Lieutenant Sergei Mikhailov Suyotkin, an officer of the Pepiensky Regiment, joined the plot. Yavit was responsible for providing the cyanide for the wine and the cakes, and he was asked to arrange for the disposal of the body. Yushoff later admitted in his book Lost Splendour, 1953, that on the 29th December 1916, Rasputin was invited to his home. The bell rang, announcing the arrival of uh, Dmitri Pelihov-Romanov and my many other friends. I showed them into the dining room and they stood for a little while. silently examining examined the spot where Rasputin was to meet his end. I took from the ebony cabinet a box containing the poison and lead on the table. Docker, Lesevert put on rubber gloves and ground the cyanide to of potassium crystals to powder. Then lifting the top of each cake, he sprinkled the inside of a dose of poison, which, according to him, was sufficient to kill several men instantly. There was also an impressive silence. We all followed the doctor's movements with motion. There remained the glasses in which the cyanide was to be poured. It was decided that we would do this last moment so the poison would not evaporate and lose its potency. Vladimir Peresk, member who is the leader of the monarchists in the Duma, supported the story in his book, The Murder of Rasputin, published in 1918. He notes, we sat down at the round table and Yusuf invited us to drink for a glass of tea and try the cakes before they had been doctored. The quarter of the hour that we had spent in the table seemed like an eternity to me. Yusuf gave Dr. Lazavert several pieces of potassium cyanide and he put on the gloves which Yaskov had procured and began to grate poison into a plate with a knife. Then picking out the cakes with pink cream, um, he lifted off the top halves and put good quantities of poison in each and replaced the tops to make them look all right. When the pink cakes were ready, he placed them into the plates with brown chocolate ones. We then cut up two of the pink ones and made them look like they'd been bitten into. We then put these onto different plates around the table. Dr. Yafford now went out to collect Rasputin in his car in the evening of the of December 1916, while the other four men waited at home with Yuzioff. According to Yafford, at the midnight of the associates, the prince concealed themselves when I entered the car and drove to the home of the monk. He admitted to me in person. Rasputin was in a gay mood. He drove rapidly to the home of the prince and descended into the library lightened with the blazing log in a huge chimney place. A small table was spread with cakes and rare wines. Three kinds of wine were poisoned and so were the cakes. The monk threw himself into the chair, his humour expanding with the warmth of the room. He then soon told his successes, his plots and the insuccess of the German arms and the Kaiser would soon be seen in Petrograd. At the proper moment he was offered the wine and the cakes. He drank the wine and devoured the cakes. Ours slipped away, but there was no sign the poison had taken effect. The monk was even merrier than before. We all seized with insane dread that the man was um, not being able to destroy. He was superhuman, and that he couldn't be killed. It was a frightful sensation. He glared at us with his black, black eyes, as though he read our minds, and he could fool us. Vladimir Pershkov later recalled that Felix Yusov joined them upstairs and exclaimed, it's impossible, just imagine he drank two glasses filled with poison at several pancakes and you can see nothing has happened, absolutely nothing, and that was at least 15 minutes ago. I cannot think of anything else that we can do. He is now sitting gloomy on the divine and only affected I can see the poison as is constantly blenching and he dribbles a bit. Gentlemen, what do you advise me to do? Eventually it was decided that Yusuf would go down and shoot Rasputin. Yusuf later recalled, I looked at my victim with dread and he stood before me quietly and trusting. Rasputin stood before me motionless, his head bent and the eyes with a crucifix. I slowly raised the crucifix. I slowly raised the revolver. Where should I aim? At the temple or at the heart? A shudder swept over me. My arm grew rigid. I aimed at the heart and pulled the trigger. Rasputin gave me a wild scream and crumpled up in the bare skin. For a moment I was appalled to discover how easy it was to kill a man. A flick of a finger had been the living, breathing man only a second before, now lay on the floor a broken doll. The Prince Felix Yushev added, Rasputin lay on his back. His features twitched in nervous spavisms. His hands were clenched, his eyes closed, a blood slain was spreading on his silk blouse. A few minutes later, all movement ceased. We bent over the body to examine it. The doctor declared that the bullet had struck him in the region of the heart. There was no possibility of any doubt. Rasputin was dead. We turned off the light and went up to my room after locking the basement door. The Grand Duke Dmitri Pelyov-Romanov drove the men to the Vransky rail terminal where they burned Rasputin's clothes. It was very late and the Grand Duke evidently feared that the great speed would attract the suspicion of the police. They then collected weights and change and returned to Yusuf's home. At 4.50am, Romanov drove the men and Rasputin's body to the Pershkiv Bridge that crossed towards the Kavrensky island. According to Vladimir Pershkiv, we drive Rasputin's course into the Grand Duke's car. Pershkiv claimed he drove very slowly. It was very late and the Grand Duke evidently feared the great speed would attract the suspicion of the police. Standard de Lervert takes up the story that they arrived at Pershkavev. We bundled up in a sheep and carried off to the river's edge. Ice now formed. We broke in and we threw him in. The next day, search was made for Rasputin, but no trace was found. The following day, the Tsarina wrote to her husband about the disappearance of Rasputin We're sitting here together. Can you imagine our feelings? Our friend has disappeared. Kodik Shyusko pretends he never, he never came to the house and never asked him. The next day, she wrote, No trace yet. The police are continuing the search. I fear these two wretched boys, Felix Yuskov and Dmitry Romanov, committed a frightful crime, but we have not yet lost hope. Rasputin's body was found on the 19th of December by a river policeman who was walking over the bridge. He noticed a fur coat trapped beneath beneath 65 metres of the bridge. The ice was cut open and Rasputin's frozen body discovered. The postmortem was held the following day. Major General Pope carried out the investigation of the murder. By this time, Dr. Uh, Levzart and Lieutenant Sergei Suvin have fled the city. They did not interview Felix Yuskov or Dmitry Romanov and Vladimir Pereshkov, but he decided not to charge them with murder. Tsarnik II ordered the three men to be expelled from Petrograd. He rejected a petition to allow the conspirators to stay in the city. He replied that no one had the right to commit murder. Sophie Berskov, who was a uh, witness to this, later commented that through patriotic feeling was supposed to be the motive for murder. It was the first indirect growth of the Emperor's authority, the first spark of insurrection. In short, it was the application of lynch law and taking the law and judgment forcibly into private hands. Several historians have questioned the official account of the death of Rasputin. They claim that the post-mortem of Rasputin carried out by Professor Dmitry Kirchhoff, that does not support the evidence provided by the confessions of Felix Jovyov, Dr. Lavartz and Vladimir Perskoviev. For example, the examination reveals no trace of poison, it appears that Rasputin suffered a violent beating. The victim's face was, body was crushed from several blows by a symbol of a hard object. His genitals have been crushed with the action of a similar object. Uh, Kirchkov also claims that Rasputin was shot by men using three different guns. One of these was a weapon revolver, a gun issued to British secret intelligence issues, and argues that it maybe was a part of the assassination. He, Rasputin was shot several times with three different weapons, but all the evidence suggests that Renner fired the fatal shot shooing his personal revolver. Now, remember, we're not saying that British secret intelligence had anything to do with it, but what's quite interesting is that, no, these myths, legends, everything's quite distorted that we really well know what took place. But it's interesting when we have a look at Gregory Rasputin's own words. For example, uh, he is supposed to have said to Felix Yoskov that the aristocrats can't get used to the idea of a humble peasant should be welcomed to the imperial palace. They are consumed with enemy and fury. But I am not afraid of them. They can't do anything to me and protect it against all ill fortune. There are many several attempts on my life, but the Lord has always frustrated these plots. Disaster will come to anyone who lifts a finger to me. But the most important words are the words that he had sent to the Tsar in December 1916, when she says, If my death will be staged by your relatives, then none of your family members, none of your children or your relatives will remain alive for more than two years. All will be killed by the Russian people, and I will be killed too. I'm not among the living anymore. Please, I beg you, be strong. Think of your blessed family. 23 days later, the Rasputin was murdered by his relatives of the Tsar, Nicholas II. And we'll see, particularly then when it comes to the Russian um, civil war, how it will lead to the death of Nicholas and his family. So particularly, you know, historians such as Joseph T. Furman points out that Gregory's personality embodied a divergent and contrasting strains, religious seeker and the debauched hellraiser. You know, what's your opinion? Do you think he's a holy man? Do you think that he's a womaniser? Do you think he's debauched? Do you think he's a scoundrel? And how is it that this man then really helps to push the family furthermore into the abyss? So remember, when it comes to this part of Rasputin, it's something you can mention in your issue one essays. If you look at the sample essay, he is discussed there and he can also be mentioned in the issue too. So I hope you have found this um, interesting. I think Rasputin is quite uh, an interesting character. i particularly give the documentary a watch. It's very, very insightful. Speak to you soon.